every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode dives into the world of product-led growth marketing with Madhukar Kumar, the Chief Marketing Officer of Single Store. Madhukar is a true PLG expert with over 18 years of experience leading product management and marketing teams. He's implemented successful PLG strategies at companies like Nutanix, Redis, and DevRev, and is even a guest lecturer on the topic at Duke University. On this episode, Madhukar shares his insights on the current state and future of PLG. He shares the ins and outs of PLG, including how it can transform your business, common misconceptions, and the biggest trends on the horizon. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by Qualified. Qualified is the pipeline generation platform for revenue teams that use Salesforce. You can intelligently grow your pipeline by understanding the signals of buying intent and having real-time conversations right on your website. You can learn more at qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Madhukar Kumar, CMO of Single Store, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. And today I am joined by our special guest, Madhukar. How are you? Very good. Nice to meet you, Ian. And looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, likewise. Really excited to chat about Single Store and all the cool stuff that y'all are doing. And of course, get into your background in marketing. So what was your first job in marketing? I actually started off my career as a journalist a long time ago in my early 20s and 1997-ish. And I was a journalist for a newspaper called Hindustan Times and Delhi. And at that time, a friend of mine and I figured out how to make web pages from, uh, you know, just looking at the daily edition of the newspaper. And that eventually evolved into what is today HindustanTimes.com or earlier version was DigitalHD.com. But that really got me into computers. So I came to the U.S. to teach web design at Kansas State University and had a full scholarship for doing my master's in MassCom. And I really got more and more into telling stories, not just by words, but but also in website, it was a brand new thing. And so I also ended up doing my master's in software engineering and became a developer. And as a developer, and I, I first did like a one-year consulting things around the East Coast and then ended up in the Bay Area. And in the Bay Area, as I started off as a developer, I was a database developer. And so I used to write SQL for a living and some of those companies are not even around. And then finally, I started doing what, what used to be called professional services, which was prior to the cloud. And that's where, you know, there's this team that would come in and help you install the software, help you customize it. And so I was pretty good with customers. So one, I was going through one company to the other, my former boss who became the head of that company called me back and he said, look, you're very good with customers. Why do you run product management? And that kind of made me 
go from being a developer to running product management. And then finally, a company where I was running product management called Liaison Technologies. And there I had a counterpart in product marketing. And one day the CEO came up to me and he said, you know what, we really like the, the roadmap that you created. We would like you to now do product marketing as well. So I ended up doing both. And then from there, I went to Oracle. It was another person, Sean Price, worked uh, with me at Zora. He became the head of cloud at Oracle, and he pulled me into Oracle and said, go run product strategy, which was classic product marketing. And that kind of got me to product marketing side of things. Then I ended up joining other tech startups, of course, Nutanix, Redis, where I ran product marketing, developer relations. And then I really got into product-led growth because that was one place where you can bring in both code or technology as well as the creative side of it in the one single place. So last few years, I've been working a bunch of different startups and I've been helping companies adopt product-led growth and they use it as, as a way to really spark or, you know, bring in the, say, pipe as well as new users from a PLG motion versus just the classic. Yeah, it, it really is such an interesting career because you've blended that product centricity from building product and now with, you know, and then with product marketing and now with PLG, which is kind of feels like the culmination of spending a career in product that now product leading marketing is 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 now the new normal for a lot of companies pretty pretty fascinating yeah that's right i, I think that's i like that term which is product led marketing and you're absolutely right when it comes to plg you have a lot of product design based into the creativity because in plg it's not just about customer acquisition but it's also about customer adoption and unless the customer becomes a paid customer, you know, whether you're a marketer or whether you're a product person, you're not successful. And so I think that's where the psychology of marketing comes in, brand awareness comes in. But then it's from the product management side where you're thinking about the user, where you're thinking about the design, thinking about interaction design, along with the visuals. Then it all comes together because... Now you have automation to make that easier and less friction for the end user to become a faster adopter of your product. But yeah, you're absolutely right. That's kind of the 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 place where I love to work, which is creativity and technology. And that's where product like marketing has a co-driven marketing. Yeah, it's funny. Well, I just saw a post on LinkedIn where they interviewed a bunch of CFOs and they're saying that the number one thing that CFOs are worried about right now is well in regards to buying technology is shelfware, which is, you know, mm-hmm. you buy it, sits on the shelf, doesn't get adopted. And then, you know, they, they have this, you know, burning hole in their pocket. And it's so funny to think about that as a marketing problem, not just as a product problem. And it just, it fuels that, that side of marketing, that life cycle component that we've started talking about more in the recent years, but in the past, like, you know, oh, who cares? Once the, once they convert, who cares? And then, you know, customer marketing and all these other, you know, lifecycle marketing and all these other things started cropping up. It's like, hey, this stuff kind of all matters. But, you know, it, it's funny to hear C- CFOs, you know, that's what they're worried about. And it should be something that we put in our marketing, right? It's like, hey, 
you have great adoption rates, that should be in your marketing because that's exactly what CFOs want to hear. We, I just did slides on this, my call before this, we were working on a slide deck. We were talking about what is the adoption for, for a podcast series? Like how do you look at adoption and, and things like that? So you don't create a piece of content that nobody ever you know consumes or something like that for that exact reason that CFOs want to justify their marketing spend. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, one of those things that I learned as we were getting into the whole cloud thing was that, you know, in a classic B2B, the goals were very different. The goals for the marketing was, let's create a marketing qualified lead. And then we have a number. And as soon as we hit the number, we take a victory lap. And sales, on the other hand, is taking those leads plus the ones that they have created. And they're turning that into dollars or they're turning that into revenue. And because the goals are always misaligned, the marketing team, you know, often say, yes, finish the goals. Whereas the sales team would say, well, at least this need was my, then you get into the attribution discussion and so on. And one of the best things about PSG is now the application has started to merge with your website, which was traditionally in the zone of purely marketing and content. Yep. And when that happens, you can no longer say, look, I got in 500 people to sign up, you know? Okay, great. You had 500 people to sign up, but what happened? Like, why did those 500 folks not take the next step? And why did those become dormant accounts a day later? Turns out you find out it was wrong segmentation or you were, you know, the a place where people are just curious to just sign in or there was some sort of an unreasonable incentive. So I think finally now, the the thing that you raised about shelf life is a joint responsibility between marketing and product. It's, it's no longer about marketing brings in somebody and then people don't adopt the product and it becomes shelfware. It's actually one and the same team, which cuts across both product and marketing. All right, let's get to our first segment here. The trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree in the nest, are we not? Where we go and feel honest and trusted and you can share those deepest, darkest marketing secrets. Tell us a little bit about Single Store and what do you do and who do you serve? If, you, if you're familiar with databases, think of it as a distributed SQL database that can do both transactions, but also analytics in milliseconds. So if that didn't make sense to you, let me try and explain. Typically what happens is when you're creating an app, you have a bunch of data that goes in and comes out almost instantly. So for example, if somebody's at the checkout, you would create a user ID or create their address information. You would create a record of what they purchased and so on. All of that is transaction. And that's a different database typically in today's world. And then later on, if somebody in the team says, hey, tell me how many socks I sold on this day between this time and this time, and it's less than $10 because I want to go offer them an instant discount coupon of $5. That's a point-in-time analytics that happens in a different database. Typically, that would be Snowflake, BigQuery, those kind of data warehouses because it's your archive. 
the transactional data is literally your bookshelf, whereas the archive is your attic or wherever you have stored an archive on your data. So analytics is always point in time. But I'm sure you've realized this too in the last few years, especially with the shutdown and everything. The two kind of merged because anything that could be converted to code turned into code. And with that, a lot of the data that were being generated turned out to be really fast-moving data. So for example, if I'm doing ride share or if I'm getting something delivered, it's not just a point-in-time data, it's real-time data. It's data coming in and you need to act on it or the app needs to act on it based on that information, that split second. I, to do that, you really need a database that can do both, both transactions, which is really fast mission-critical data in an app without failure, but also the point-in-time analytics turns into millisecond analytics. So single store is that, except that it's based on SQL, So, which means SQL is a language that was used to talk to databases. It's almost like plain English. But you can use that data in real time while you're pulling in the data, right? So why is that important? Well, one example would be, let's say I am, and this is a real story, by the way. I got to rally a few months ago. And we all got off the plane and we all went to the designated area of Uber and Lyft. And I just looked over, there are four, four or five of the people who are going to the same destination because I spoke to one of them earlier at the, in the plane. And they all take out their app and they all request for an Uber and they all request for the same destination to go. But each one gets a different price. And why is that? Because maybe somebody requested a a premium delivery or, you know, higher priority one. The second one could have requested for two cars. So based on whatever I did, in a split second, less than a millisecond, I got a different promo. So in a way, right, share as anybody or any company that's making these kind of apps or real-time or instant apps, whatever you call it, has found a way to generate revenue out of it. So instead of keeping all data into archive, if you can take that data, and really turn this into a segment of one marketing campaign. That's that's a revenue. That's how you grow the company today's days. That's where single store use cases really shine, where you have very fast moving data and you need to reason on it in split second in order to give a better user experience. That's what single store does. I love it. And who are your target customers? What does that ideal customer profile look like? Yeah, and that's what I feel like it has been an epiphany for me as well. If you talk to any database company, they'll tell you that their their users are developers, which has changed, by the way. It used to be DBAs or database administrators. But with the advent of cloud, now it's the developers who use the databases a lot more. Yeah. And then there's, there's the buyer, right? The buyer could be, oh, I'm in IT or I'm in engineering. I have a budget, I'm either a director or a VP, and I make decisions for the team on what to buy. But I feel like for us, we are that invisible technology that is needed. We were talking about electricity earlier, right? The only time you notice when there is electricity is when it's not there. Right? Yeah. It never goes away because, you know, you're used to it. You're used to the internet. You're used to the TV. You're used to your phone already being charged and so on. And when it goes away, you realize that 
all these other things actually rely on it. And your day-to-day life, sometimes critical activities depend on it. I think database is like that. It's that invisible technology that is needed to build any apps that you're building today. What size companies are you traditionally working with? We work with across the spectrum. So on one hand, we have a lot of these marketing analytics companies, startups. And of course, that would make sense because, you know, these are companies that specialize in real-time product analytics or real-time marketing analytics that they monetize and then sell. And then there are bigger companies that are looking into doing inventory management without naming names of company. Let's say there's a medical insurance company. And this is a true story. One of our customers, what happens is when you go to the pharmacy and you request for a medication, that real-time application looks up in real-time to say, are there any generic alternatives to that medication that I can offer to you at $0 copay? And of course, it, it relies on a bunch of different data available at that time. In that buying committee, those personas, does that also vary quite a bit? Or what does that buying committee look like? Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of things have changed across different technologies, not just in databases, right? So yeah. if you go to if you go to financial services, a very large bank, or if you go to healthcare or insurance companies, yes, there are buying committees and they go through all that process of RFP and going and talking to an industry analyst and so on. But I think more and more, we see how, let's say, for example, Slack rules, you know, when I wanted to use Slack, I just went and downloaded it for free, started using it. I needed to talk to Ian. So I told Ian, go sign up on my workspace. And then a month later, when I couldn't search beyond a week, I go to my manager, they'd like to buy it. And when there's 10 of us telling the manager, then now the user has made that buying decision. And I think the same thing has happened both in technology and specifically in the application world. It's no longer where at least the younger startups, companies, they're no longer going and relying just on a body company to buy. It still happens, don't get me wrong. But more and more developers are saying, hey, look, I just need to get this thing done. I would rather go start it build something out, show it to my manager if they like it, then I move from the free version or the premium version to the paid version, and then I go talk to somebody in sales. Yeah, the, the shadow IT situation, which, you know, over the, over the years was, you know, sales perhaps selling around IT to try to go to the, you know, the business owners. And now it's like they can be using a product without even ever talking to, you know, to anyone to now they can, you know, install you know their team or whatever it is and get started and then you realize oh geez there's you know five or six or seven teams in our company that are using this maybe we should start getting some enterprise licenses or or whatever it is it's a beautiful thing when it when it comes together yeah absolutely and i think that's why the entire nature of marketing has changed even in b2b and that's what i meant initially when i said you know it used to be that you come to a website, you attend a webinar, or you download a white paper, suddenly you become an MQL or a qualified lead, and then you hand it over to the the BDR, call them, try to get a meeting, and then once you have a meeting, then you try and bring in the sales rep who tries to sell you, 
sometimes there's a proof of concept. So it takes six to eight months and the cost of sales is much higher. Whereas now as a marketer, it makes me incredibly excited because I can throw a page up there. And if I work with the product team to create a premium version, I can work through the overall interaction design to have people go try out my product without talking to a human, sitting in their sweatpants at midnight and some other yeah. part of the world and make the buying decision on their own. And at some point, when you want to talk to a human, that's when the rest of the sales team comes in. So even in B2B, what at least that's my experience is that we see ground up, which is what we just described, and that's PLG. And the traditional one still works, where you're still talking to buyers, you're still talking to buyer committees, but those are for much larger deals and that by nature takes longer and more effort, so to speak. But how cool is it when your sales rep can go to one of your target accounts and instead of saying, hey, it would be great if you bought this offer, you can say, let me tell you how your team is using our software currently. Yeah. Like, let me show you all of the time, effort, energy, resources that we've saved you. Let me show you the productivity. Let me show you this stuff because you actually have that and you know the usages and you know everything. And, you know, it always goes back to like marketing and sales. When you can give the person information about their company that they didn't know, that is like truly the, the trusted advisor type, you know, consultative sales approach. Absolutely. In fact, I used to, I used to wonder about it quite loud a few years ago. Like what would be great is I could tell the story of my product and companies in a room when I'm not present or when my team is not present. And that's what product-led marketing does. It basically tells you a story even before you walk in. And so it has both, I would say, pros and cons, right? If it's it's an easy-to-use product, it works great. But if your product requires a lot of hand-holding and it requires a lot of... elaborate onboarding experience that extends over time, then that's not right for PLG. In that case, you know, people might get frustrated. So that might have a side effect when you walk in and they might have the conception of, oh, this is very hard to use and so on. But most of the time, if you can give them a flavor of your product and your product is easy to use and has value, they already know it. So then the discussion is, now let me show you what else you can do when you go to the enterprise version. And by the way, this is what you're using now. Just like you said, here's what you can do more. POG has sort of been widely adopted and perhaps in certain areas like over-adopted where having like no reliance on sales and certain like enterprise sales, especially when you're selling to the enterprise. And there's been some things that have come out that have sort of said like, hey, Go swinging too far in this direction could actually be, a, you know, you're you're letting you're letting deals fall through the funnel. That there is an importance in having that that enterprise rep. I'm curious, like, where do you think in terms of strategy as you came into this role? How do you think about the having the enterprise sales motion and the PLG motion working together? Yeah, I wish I could show you like one of those funny cartoons where you know there are two two folks who's using like a square a stone for, for a wheel on their cart. And yeah. there's a guy standing right behind them with the wheel. And those folks, those are the sales folks, they say, no, I don't want it. I'm too busy trying to fix this wheel, right? Yeah. And my experience has always been there in miscommunication 
when you are mixing PLG with what I would call as PNS, a product-led sales. And if you are, if you're, you know, one of those companies that started much earlier on, then you're kind of entrenched in that, I would say, enterprise strategic sales, which has built a lot on, you know, relationships and events and so on. But the reality is that, and this is something that I learned personally at the company called Tannings, where I worked in, we built something called Test Drive. And what you realized was that whether it was because everybody had been forced to be in front of the computers at home, that people started taking Test Drive almost like in a hockey stick way. They would go in, they would go try it out, and we had this chatbot. They would go, they would book meetings. And the more people tried it and the more people that took it to the next step of what could be a POC, the faster the sales cycle would go and the overall cost was a lot better too, right? But the reality is it's neither, it's not either or. It's not as if you either do PLG or PLS. It's a combination of both. You, you talk to your users through the freemium product and the trial and so on. But at the same time, there has to be a gradation of experience. You, the way I like to describe it is, you know, you're having a party in a museum. You draw some people into the, you know, the main lobby hall. Then a few more people choose to go in. And as you move them further along, the ones that are truly there for the value will find you and take you further into that funnel to go buy that priceless painting that they had in mind. <laughs> but you have to, but you have to first talk to them all the way from, you know, getting people into into the lobby. I think that there is a section of buyer that straight up doesn't want to talk to sales, and we have woefully underserved them for years and years and years. But then, if you go swing too far, you know, the pendulum that way, you forget about there are a lot of people who really want to have their hand held every single step of the way. You know that. That 87 yeah. email chain that you have in Gmail, where it's like every single possible question that comes up over and over and over again that this person you know, wants it. Every FAQ question, right? Hey, go read the FAQs. No, I have this question. It's a little bit different because my company's different. And I think that that led a few marketers astray to realize like that this is opening up a new type of, of buying in which you have to invest in that type of buying if you have that type of product or service, or maybe if your competitors do or whatever it is, but you should not just like forget about the other types of people, as you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, who would have thought that you could have buy a car worth $60,000 in front of the computer without talking to anybody? Yeah. But today you can do that. And who would have thought that the car would magically appear once you have bought it and they would just leave it and walk away. But I've seen cases where people don't want that. People would say, yep. no, no, I actually want to go sit inside a car. I, and I want to talk to somebody before I buy it. And so it's, it's all about choices. I, I do feel that there are, and maybe it's just my opinion because I'm kind of like that way. I don't wake up in the morning saying, I'd love to see a pitch deck from a sales rep. <laughs> I would rather go and talk to my friends. I would rather go my own research. And if they have a product out, I'd love to try it out. In fact, for somebody like me, I'm in marketing. And as you know, marketers 
are the most common consumers of most technologies and average they have like 26 or 27 different tools for everything that they do on a day-to-day basis. And every time I see there is no option to try out the product and instead it says, hey, book here or, you know, call this number for a demo, I'm out of there because there are 20 other people who are letting you just try out the product first. But you're absolutely right. There's also this other kind of users because of the requirements. They don't want to just try it out. They also want to talk to people to see if we have HIPAA compliance to see what are your security practices and, you know, what are the customizations that are available. So I think it has to be, like as typically we, we do as humans, we either are at one end of the spectrum or the other end, and then eventually come to the middle ground. I think that's what makes me very excited about working in marketing at single stores because it's right at the middle. It's not just either or. It's not just, oh, just do PLG and nothing else. And that's going to cannibalize our sales. And it's not the other way as well. Or we'll only do sales because PLG is for only younger companies. It has to be a full marketing mix of both. And that's where I think the most potential is in the next few years. All right, let's go to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. What are your three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? Yeah, I think that that answers my mind changes every year, or at least when you build out a strategy and a plan. I think this year, I've already seen a lot of people coming back in person. And people are hungry to meet in real life as well. So the first one I would say for me would be events. And then, of course, hybrid events too rent the webinars as such. I wouldn't try not to credit, and there are ways to do that in a very economic fashion. The second one would be developer relations because we do sell to app builders and developers. And what I mean by that as a channel is not just going into paid, but building tools that help the developers, but makes them also use our product. Things like Visual Studio Code extension, it could be a chat GPT extension for writing SQL, those kind of things. And then the third one, I would say definitely SEO and content. That is changing quite a lot because of AI and other stuff. But as of today, it's still extremely important to hide. I definitely agree with you there. And I think it is it is changing so much every day and all the different types of content that you can create. So we can we can definitely dig into that in a second. I want to jump back to events though. First, do you have sort of like a mix or a blend of the type of events that you want to, you know, go to? Do you have like a, or, or is it not a blend? And you're like, I want to go to every single big industry one. And I want to have a small presence there. I want to have a big presence at one. I want to have, you know, like, how do you think about that? From our main constituents, audience perspective, mostly developers, technology, IT folks, and so for them, there are certain events that that's that are big watering hole for them. And those would be if you're in the cloud, let's CWS reinvent, Google Next, those kind of events, CNC apps, if you're doing Kubernetes. Those are, I would say, some places where you have to consider where you have the most visibility, but also, you know, more more meaningful conversations that you can have. 
But in addition to that, I feel there's another category, which is us creating our own events too. And what I mean by that is a little bit more like an extended version of meetups, right? Where you're talking to developers, but it's only for two hours, not for the entire two days. And in that two hours, you're going to have experience. And it's also hybrid. So either you come in and do that two hours and then go to dinner, or you just stay at home and watch that entire two hours and follow along in front of your computer as well. Those are far more economic, but a lot more engaging in my mind. Now, there's always a little bit of friction when there's some people in person and some people online. But the last one that we did was in New York City. We had overflow of people. Like, we had to turn away people because it was full completely. And they were, you know. So I do feel that those kind of events is really coming back this year. You, you mentioned developer relations. It's a tricky thing here. And I've, I don't know how you feel about this, but I have seen some developer relations budgets get cut in over the past six months with budget reordering and allocation because the CFO says, what's the ROI on that? And I'm just curious, like, what do you think about sort of like, how do you justify quote unquote ROI of a program like that? That seems, seems pretty critical if that's who you're selling to. I'll go back to why cold driven marketing product-led marketing really comes in because you want to tie it back to, did you bring in some valid signups because of these things that you did, right? And when you're talking to developers, I still like to code in my past time. And at that time, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to go and look at a deck or I don't want to go look at some marketing content, but I do like to go look at a tutorial. And if you has created a Udemy course, which we did just by the way, and you are giving it to me for free so that I can learn something and do something valuable, then I'm going to be one of your biggest fans because, you know, I, I get that, that you're trying to help me out. And so yeah. I think from developer relations, one thing, at least in my experience, that works quite well is education. And yep. tools that help developers do their job better, the tools can have an attribution to sign up. And education can have a sign up to your overall pipeline as well. So they're not just, it's no longer just vacuous because of PLG. You can tie it back to your ROI. And I think in some ways that's the right thing to do. Otherwise, it used to be, oh, I'm going to get a very famous influencer and have them come and speak at the office. But nothing happens after that, right? So yep. I think those those are the ones that are getting cut. And I wholeheartedly agree because I think it's about, you know, we always heard that 13 impressions equals a sale thing. Well, it's like, if you were to just take, you know, John Doe, a developer at your target company who's not a customer, how many interactions are you going to have with that person over the course of a year? Like, you got to have that 13 interactions with this person. And I think that so few people, when they think about their developer relations, is like, it's not, it doesn't have the depth to get that level of engagement. And some people like to listen to podcasts and some people like to watch YouTube videos and some people like to go to in-person events and some people, and like you have to have that portfolio approach to both your content and your events and your experiences and your tools, like you said, that you are touching multiple different ways. Because some people 
are not going to opt into some of those things. And like, I think that you got to yeah. sort of have that array. In several ways, it is similar to me watching a TV ad or me driving past 101 and looking at a billboard, right? How do I calculate the ROI for it? So I do think you're right. And, and DevRel has a component to that where fame matters. And that's what drives bound. And if I'm not aware of something or somebody, and suddenly I go and say, hey, go try out this product. It'll be like, but I don't know who you are. What do you do, right? So you're absolutely right. There has to be gradation of experience across multiple different medium, across multiple different events, channels. And then eventually, I think you can then see it's, you know, what you're doing is leading to more signups on art. It doesn't have to be just, oh, we just had one million impressions. Nothing came out. And I, I think this also goes back to what I would say social media. And, you know, my experience with social media is you can put out a tweet or a LinkedIn post every day and you could get zero, and I mean zero engagement with it. But at the end of the day, I personally have experienced where people come and say, hey, hey I read your article or I read what you said on LinkedIn. And then I feel like, okay, so there are a lot of people who are just lurking around. They yep. know who you are. They know what you've written about. But for whatever reason, they don't engage with the content. And so there's this notion of a dark social as well. That doesn't mean I stop doing it. You know, it, I have to continue trying out a bunch of different experiments. And if the overall metric is still moving to the right and top, then I think you continue to double down on it. But if you're spending a lot of these, at the end of the day, your signups are still zero. Then I would start to question what's going on there. How do you view your website? I think website is one of the most important tools, both for marketing, but primarily also for brand awareness and brand identity. So, you know, the two aspects of it. One is the, one is the tangible SEO finding, you know, learning more about aspect and the eventually going and trying out your product aspect to it. And the other aspect is just to get a feel for what is this company about? What do they stand for? What do they do? What is their story? So from that perspective, I feel like the website is the first, or quite often the first point of contact with your prospect, which gives them an idea of your brand identity, your brand experience. And that's where the storytelling and the messaging comes in. That's where the emotion comes in. It, it doesn't have to be, you know, exactly like all other competitors doesn't necessarily have to talk about feed and speed. We are thinking, at least I'm thinking of how we tell our story that helps builders who build on top of single store, some real amazing applications at real time. So for us, a website is a very important piece of both communication as well as discovery. All right, let's get to our next segment, the desktop. Uh-oh, here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. Where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, your competitor, or anyone else. Have you had a memorable dust-up in your career? 
Well, quite a few, I would say. And that, that kind of is part of what you do. It, it's part of what makes you better as well. You know, there have been instances where, just like I was telling you, where, you know, as a product marketer, you build a message and the straight up sales team will tell you, I don't use it. I'm going to use it the way I want to use it. And that is fine. As long as, you know, you have a, you have a very well-trained sales team and they can go tell their stories. But I've worked with companies where you had 20,000 sales. And if everybody starts telling their own story, then it becomes a problem because and you have a suite of products that you're working through. So there are a bunch of dust-ups, as you would call it, around those scenarios. And then, of course, there's always marketing is one place where everybody feels in the company that they can do messaging and they can do it better than everybody else. Yep. And so that's kind of always the place where you have uh, have some sort of a handy touch. All right. And we got about two minutes left here. So we're going to get to our final segment. Quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers. Just like how Qualified.com helps companies generate pipeline faster, tap in your greatest asset, your website, and identify your most valuable visitors and instantly start sales conversations quick and easy. Just like these questions, go to Qualified.com to learn more. We love Qualified. They're the absolute best tool in everybody's toolkit. And they're, they're just our best friends in the whole world. So go to Qualified.com to learn more. Buy car. Quick hits. Are you ready? Of course. Number one, do you have a hidden skill or talent that's not on your resume? I learned how to play the guitar when I turned 40, so I can play a few strums now. Do you have a favorite book, podcast, or TV show that you've been checking out recently? My favorite book that I'm rereading is When Breath Becomes Air. Do you have a favorite non-marketing hobby that maybe indirectly makes you a better marketer? I love to take pictures. And I've really started enjoying making videos like really early stages of storytelling for videos. Oh, that's awesome. Photography and just any, and video is like every single marketer. We should all be doing that. It's so, it's such a great skill. Final question here. What would be your one piece of advice for a first time CMO who's trying to figure out their marketing strategy? Don't be afraid to experiment. And I would say take risks because the thing about marketing is when everybody is doing the same thing, it's no longer effective. So only the ones who have the risk-taking ability and the creativity to go try out new things are the ones who top the core. I love it. Fantastic advice. Do experiments, y'all. Thanks so much for listening. For all of our listeners, you can go to singlestore.com to check out the company and go tell your developer to, to sign up. Start for free. Click the star for free button. Madagascar, again, thanks so much for joining and take care. Thank you, Ian. Nice talking to you. The ManGen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.